0: You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys Podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Vadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome to the DIY Recording Guys Podcast, an exciting episode today on recording with the final product in mind. I'm your host, Vadim Karaz from Calm Frog
1: Recording and i'm ben hall from DreamLoud studio ben what's new man man a lot's new the biggest thing is i just got a new car and it's exactly what i wanted when i got my last car so i'm real excited about that so you you deferred you deferred your hopes and dreams till this to this car yes i did yeah for some w- what weird is reason it? Uh, well first of all for some weird reason mazda 3s are like extremely popular in pittsburgh where i'm from and located really so so popular that um, when I bought my, ma- my last Mazda 3 four, four or so years ago, uh, the market, because I, I checked it out on True Car which is like um, Kelly Blue Book. It gives you prices of cars in the area, and it tells you if it's a fair price or not. And just in general, the, the price of Mazda 3s in Pittsburgh is inflated by two to $4,000 because they're so popular. What? Like, uh, as, like compared to other cities? Yeah, compared to other cities. Wow and i don't know why people love them here i mean i love them so it just must be something in the water but uh is that all mazda 3s or specifically hatchbacks just mazda 3s and at the time that would have been 2016 uh hatchbacks were like impossible to find for like an affordable no kidding price and that's what I really wanted was a hatchback, but I settled for a sedan and I kind of wish that I hadn't because my bass amp was living at my friend's house for four years and I just picked it up tonight because I was <laughs> finally able to. Wow. <laughs> and it, it's just one of those things where like as a musician, and, and it is funny, like probably all the people listening, like you you either are this person or you play in a band with this person, but the person that just drives around a mom band everywhere because they're a drummer you, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And like they could get better gas mileage or have a nicer car, but it's a sedan and they can't lug their music gear around. Like that's always a struggle for a musician. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And the, it, I did have a Mazda 3 hatchback as well. And it's amazing, man. The, for the same footprint, they have the same footprint as the sedan. You can fit so much stuff in the back
1: of that thing. It's like a little pickup truck. Yeah. We're not sponsored by Mazda, but you know, we've, we've, uh, <laughs> well, this is just we a, a comment <laughs> on hatchbacks in general.
0: But I did um, my first car in high school was like a it was a 1991 Plymouth Caravan with a sliding door. Oh yes, and I was I was the only kid in my high school who drove a minivan, <laughs> and I didn't care because I could put all my friends in it at the same time. We could put yeah. gear in it, could drive around. It was great. It was great. Towards the end of its life, you could only drive it for about 10 minutes without the engine overheating, so then you'd have to stop and wait. But even that was nice, you know? You just got to stop, take a little break. Yeah, <laughs> back in high car. school,
1: you got nowhere to be. Like, it's just part yeah. of the
0: experience. Exactly, exactly.
1: Well, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm glad I could have that, finally live my dream of the Mazda 3 hatchback, so. That's great, man. That's that's definitely convenient for lugging amps and stuff
0: around, so I'm excited for you.
1: It's awesome. So what's new with you, man? Uh,
0: what's new... Let me think about this for a minute, and then I'll have cool. to edit this section. Yeah, I feel like I should be—I should have been better prepared. Um, oh no, no, I do have something. I do have something. I. Um, yeah. Uh, did we talk about when I went? I went snowboarding. Oh in, yeah, in, no,
1: we didn't talk about that at all.
0: Yeah, I went snowboarding in Maine last week, and. It was awesome. I, oh, I feel like so I, awesome. you know, working on studio stuff and just in general through the winter, you're just inside so much, looking at computer screens. So I went up there. My friend has like a time, like a cabin that he, you know, he buys into, so he can use. We stayed up there for almost a whole week. We went. We had some great weather up at Sunday River, and just like just being outside and not looking at screens
1: was just really refreshing. So it recharged my batteries a bit. That's awesome. I'm actually you snowboard right. Yeah, I'm really jealous. I, I probably could have made time for it this year, but I just figured with our weather, the slopes oh, were yeah. not going to be good.
0: It was terrible. Yeah, up there, up in Maine, it actually did look like winter. There's snow on the ground, and it's it's pretty far north. I mean, it's it's almost
1: Canada, so. That's true. So, uh, yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm I'm happy for you. Cool. Thanks. Hopefully, whenever I get married, here coming up here pretty soon, and we're out in Idaho. There'll still be some slopes open. Yeah. Yeah, here's hoping at least. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right, I guess transitioning into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So, Vadim, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, recording with the final product in mind. So what do we mean by that? And uh, I had the idea uh, to do this episode because of a a listener question that came in from my friend and co-bandmate in The Fading Light, Josh Doran. Uh, So this is his question. It's a pretty big and broad topic, but how about making room in your mix? Equalizing everything out to get a big mix where everything sits together is a tough skill to learn. And I agree with you, Josh. It is a tough skill to learn. So, this is more of a mixing question, but since we're a recording podcast, I wanted to focus in on uh, really where the idea of getting, um, making room in your mix. Really begins is in the recording phase, and Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a long journey for me to kind of figure this out. Because originally, when I started working with projects and mixing, especially things that I recorded on my own, it's a little bit different when you have when you're getting uh, stems from somebody else because normally they've already figured this out or they have a tone or a sound. But when you're recording your own Material or somebody else's material, you're kind of responsible for, uh, I guess, signing off on the final tones that are recorded. And uh, what I started finding was sometimes a bass tone wasn't working with the guitar tone, and this is just as recorded. And even though I was throwing five or six plugins on the guitar Mm -hmm. to try to make them thicker or thinner or carve room. Uh, It just seemed that sometimes just based on the tone that was picked, they weren't playing together. Right. And this started to clue me in on, okay, maybe this mixing is about a lot more than just carving things and figuring that guitars take up this frequency of 200 hertz to 2000 hertz and bass takes up 80 hertz to 200 hertz or or whatever preconceived ideas i had in my head cuz that's the way i used to look at it is well the vocals fit here in this frequency spot and the guitars are here and the drums are everywhere i guess <laughs> but that's where it starts that's where it starts to get confusing cuz you start realizing that man there's a lot of overlap from every instrument like even symbols will have some frequencies or resonances down around 200 mm. uh, that could be usable or unusable depending on what you're going for. Uh, but I started realizing that, wow, the, the tones uh, that we record at the beginning of the process are as important as anything that winds up happening in the mixing later, so... I really wanted to dig into this today to maybe give you guys some ideas of what does this really mean, this idea of making room in the mix, because I think that uh, when you just hear that phrase, you might think it means one thing, but I think that it goes much deeper than that and in some ways is a lot more subtle than just carving things. Any thoughts on that, Vadim? Well, I I did want to, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned this in another episode
0: and we never, we kind of passed over it. You were talking about a time when you got, I think you got stems to mix Mm -hmm. or maybe it was was even offline and you made this comment of, you felt like the tones, like the bass guitar tones and the guitar tones were picked independently of each other and without, you know, consideration for how they would work together. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. I feel like you have a good ear for that. I'm wondering if maybe you'll get to this, but can you elaborate on that at some point in this episode?
1: yeah, we can, we can talk about it right now, actually. That's a great segue into this and a great example. So uh, I'll repeat the story. I know I told the beginning of the story before. Maybe it was... Uh, I forget what, uh, what are the online and offline conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this have. might not have been actually picked up, but um, this band that I was working with out of Texas sent me these tracks, and they had already recorded and had the project mixed at another studio. But they sent me the mix, uh, the vocalist did, and said, Ben, we know you're a mix engineer uh, and there's something wrong, (laughs) air quotes, there's something wrong with the song and we don't know Mm. what it is. Can you take a listen to it? So I took a listen and it was just a mess, but for a few different reasons, um, Like our last episode, we talked about how important it is to time-align drums. That was one of the problems. But uh, one of the many problems with it was that it just felt like the guitars in particular, so leads, solos, rhythms, and bass guitar, they all felt like they were competing together for the same space. Mm. Uh, It felt like either one guitar to be heard was just turned up in volume, to the point where it was kind of annoying uh it didn't feel like it sat with the other guitars so for example that would be let's say a lead uh instead of having the lead maybe frequency-wise fit in so where it can be heard effortlessly uh because the tone didn't work with the rhythm guitars maybe they were taking up the same frequency the mix engineer just turned up the volume so the the lead guitar was blaring loud and kind of covering all the rhythms that were underneath it so did they, they they sent they sent you like a,
0: a rough mix or something to just to comment on yeah and i th- i oh, I, see. I think it might
1: have been a final mix
0: oh okay okay
1: and then through that i through making my comments they asked me to try to fix it so i asked for the stems and so i was able to get my Uh, get my hands on the stems and that made it a lot more clear that um so for example this song was like kind of heavy to hard rock like breaking benjamin style something Mm -hmm. in that vein and the bass tone was very metal a lot of distortion a lot of top end to it and the guitars sounded like nickelback hard rock Mm. So, the bass almost didn't seem like it seemed like, or the vibe that I got was that this bass player is playing in a completely different band. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean like he's yeah, the bass player is playing yeah. in a metal band. The rest of the band is playing in nickelback. you, you know what I, you know what I mean and it's yeah, and it's funny that these considerations come into mind, but it's more important to have uh the whole song gel together than it is for each individual member to have their ideal tone. And I know that we've all been guilty of this, and we may still be guilty of this at times, because uh, I know for sure whenever I played in bands uh, growing up that I just wanted to have tones similar of the bands that I liked. And mm. growing up, I was really into... I really loved Corn when they first came out. So I wanted a very like uh, slappy top end distorted bass tone like Fieldy did but that doesn't fit together in a band if you're playing weezer cover songs <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that might be a uh an extreme example but um that that band and that project in particular like that stood out to me as uh and i followed up with the question i asked you know how did you guys record this uh, and they said that they went into the studio, they plugged their DI in, straight into the interface. Um, well, I don't even think they had a DI. They just plugged their guitars with their instrument cable straight into the interface and played their parts, maybe not even with any tone on it, just, just the clean DI. Uh, and the engineer told them, we'll figure out the tones later. Mm. And the band wasn't even in the room to pick the tones. They kind of just they kind of just left that up to the engineer to do with what he wanted with it, and it was very obvious that either the engineer was really bad or he just didn't take any uh, tender loving care with it.
0: Right. There's so there's three thing there's three flags I want to plant there. I think you made three really good points. Uh, One is that that one of the problems was in the mix that the instruments were kind of stepping on each other. Even irrespective of the tones, they were kind of fighting, right? Which is a problem. And we can talk about that because on some level, that can be a recording problem as well. The second thing you said was that the tones were kind of picked independently. Like it sounded like the bass was, it was like a metal bass, but then like a hard rock guitar and that didn't really work together. Mm
1: -hmm. And then the
0: third thing you said was that they played just hearing their clean guitar signals through a DI. and, And that's... An interesting choice I'm not going to say I've never done that but you have to be careful doing that because I don't I'm curious to know what you think about this but I've I felt as a guitarist that having a tone affects the way I play like if I can hear you know the kind of the response of that amp of that speaker even if it's an emulation if I can feel
1: that chug it's going to affect my playing style oh yeah absolutely yeah I I always try to um And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I always try to pick the final tone that I'm going to have printed when I'm doing the tracking because it affects how you play so much. Absolutely. Or at least get close. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's say you're starting from scratch. So you have a song,
0: and the time is now to try to think
1: ahead, try to pick tones that are going to work well together in the mix. Where do you start? We can actually, a good place to start, even before I get into that, is. Do you have any demos of your band playing live? Or have you recorded anything live? Or maybe just take an objective listen to your song. I'm saying this in the context of you're playing in a band and you want to record your band. Uh, Maybe instead of focusing so much on the part you're playing in band practice or at a gig, uh, take a more critical ear and just listen to what what does my band sound like? What kind of vibe do we have? What are we going for? And based off of that, uh, you could start making decisions when it comes to the kit. And there's even with drums, there's so many infinite decisions you can make. And now I know that I'll say this with a caveat of you might have a budget of there's only one kit available to record, so we have to use this kit. Um, but if you have different shells available, um, I know even the the shape of the bearing edge on drums drastically affects the tone. And I know DW drums in particular, they have the sharpest bearing edge of any of the main drum manufacturers. And that gives a very hard rock, uh, high-end, slappy tone to what is the, bearing edge? the drum. The bearing edge is where the drum head comes into contact. It's where it touches the shell. Okay. And you can either have a very rounded bearing edge, which uh, keeps more of the shell in contact with the drum head. A sharper bearing edge, uh, more like a point, uh, triangular shaped, um, the sharper that bearing edge is, the less the shell is engaged in the tone of the drum when you're hitting it with a stick mm. so if you want a more wooden sound or you want to bring out more the tone of the kit itself then you want a rounder bearing edge and those can actually be modified like I don't know if I would do it myself but you could take it to a drum shop and have your bearing edges custom mm. uh, right you can either customize
0: like sharpened or dulled effectively yeah
1: yeah And I think it's interesting that when I found this out, it's interesting that a lot of the hard rock bands that I like play DW kits. And Mm. it's because toms especially that have a sharp bearing edge like that, they just have this really high attack sound to them, like really slappy in some ways. Mm. And that's a very stereotypical hard rock sound, like where you have the attack of the stick on the toms is very prominent. So you can hear every single hit. Um, whereas with, let's say a, a jazz drummer is going to play a Ludwig kit, which has very rounded bearing edges and that has a dollar sound to it. And yeah, you might've never thought about this before. And of course there's always, if you're stuck playing a Ludwig kit because you have nothing else, even if you're a hard rock band, you can always EQ more attack into the drum sound. So you're not stuck with that, but when it's built into the kit itself, then what you record is closer to the tone that you want. Mm. So that's a really simple thing you can do. Um, you can pick symbols that fit your application better. I would say that there's like three main symbol companies that I can think of. Uh, but there, and of course there's others, but the three big main ones are Zoljin, Sabian and Minel. Uh, Zojin tend to be, I think the brightest. Sabian are close to Zoljin, but they have a lot more cool custom things and they're a little bit they're a little bit more tame. Like Zoljin are meant to cut through the mix, cut through the loud high gain guitars. They're just mm-hmm. gonna be bright on top, in your face, Daggers in your ears sometimes, but that's Zojin. <laughs> Sabian is a little bit more, okay, we'll play happy, but it's still close to uh, Zoljin. I love Meinl because they have a lot of vibe and they're way darker. I feel like they fit better into a lot of mixes. And I, I've seen a lot more guys in hard rock bands playing Meinl cymbals, which is cool too.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I find that's something I, I'm i always cutting high end out of out of overhead mics on mixes I do. And so, yeah, it's bright cymbals are maybe live is a different story, but in a mix they can really kill a mix quick and make it kind of exhausting to listen to. So, yeah, that's that's some really good notes kind of following up from our, our last episode on on drums. And actually, I learned a lot there, so that was <laughs> cool. cool. Um, I was also thinking about when you're starting from scratch, kind of, you know, for, for one thing, like you said, you know, no part of your song exists in a vacuum. Like, the parts have to work together, but your song probably does have a focal point, right? It has something that's kind of the main feature. So, actually, there was a... Many episodes ago you had written this in your notes, the statement which I really liked and you never talked about it. So I'm going to oh, no. I'm going to tra- <laughs> I'm going to attribute it to you now, but it's really I thought it was a really good note. So and and you had it was in in relation to something totally different, but you had said something like you know, if you were going to play this song just singing it and with an instrument, like with an acoustic guitar, wow. how would you play it? And so I'm going to kind of adopt that for this discussion and say you know, the way the instrument you choose to play and your voice, that's probably the focal points of your song in most cases. So if you're starting from scratch, if you're building a song from scratch, and let's say you're maybe a single, uh, you know, a solo singer songwriter, you're not even in a band, start with the focal point and try to get that focal point to be where you want it before choosing other tones that will then complement that. And I had some uh, thoughts here on like, if you listen to different mixes, like I had three examples here. You listen to like an Ariana Grande mix, where like the vocals are everything, Mm -hmm. versus like a Primus mix, where like it's a lot of bass, versus like an Every Time I Die mix, which is like a lot of vocals, but also a lot of guitars, right? And a lot of kick drums. So there's a kind of different examples of very different genres that have very different focal points. And so you kind of want to think about, what are the main parts of my song?
1: And start building your tone by building those parts. That's a really great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I would absolutely, when it comes to writing and recording a song, I would definitely build it out that way. So I wouldn't just, by default, start with the drums every single time. Especially if I can think of, well, the one song that popped into my head, I don't even know the name of it. I should look it up right now on Spotify. But it's a Thrice song, and I really love the guitar intro on it. Like, the guitar is the hook of the song, so I would build that whole song around that guitar sound and that hook. And I would make sure, probably from there, I would make sure that whatever vocal mic that I chose would complement the vocalist and also fit into the mix so it wasn't fighting with the guitar, but Mm. kind of being able to be heard around it. I would pick a drum... Not just a drum sound, but a snare sound in particular. Like, I like how I talked about drums and I forgot the most important part of the drums, which is the snare sound. <laughs> but I would pick yep. a snare um, that would fit with the vibe of the song. Um, and a really good example of this, and it does, you don't have to overthink this, you can think uh, high-tuned, high pitch snare or low death metal, hard rock snare. Like, you can... Split them into those categories, and of course, there's a lot of stuff in the middle. But mm. uh, 311 isn't 311 with a really high pitched. Oh man, that's the highest pitched snare I've ever heard. But I love 311.
0: Yeah, yesterday was 311
1: day. It was. Day we're, oh, happy we're 311. Recording day. This on the 12th. <laughs> <laughs> and the same difference, you don't have bands like Corn or or whoever else without the low tuned snare, and of course, there's always. Uh, caveats to this because the two bands that come to mind are Slipknot and uh, Amir who both have really high-pitched snares for how heavy the music is so you can always go outside the box with that but I that's what I would normally think of uh, when it comes to picking a snare sound and then you just start plugging in the different tones of the instruments just kind of making sure that each instrument that you add in the recording process plays well with the others. And that can also, uh, and maybe you can touch on this a little bit too, Vadim, because this goes back to one of our earlier episodes where we talked about there's at a maximum three to four different parts of a song that you can focus on at a time. And so I know, so I know a lot of times when I'm recording a song, especially if there's vocals involved, like, The main important parts to me a lot of times are uh, the vocal tone, the guitar tone, especially if it's guitar prominent, and probably the drum set and the snare, how it fits in there. And a lot of times songs that are very vocal and guitar focused, the bass is just there as a supporting instrument, so I don't stress a lot of time trying to find the perfect tone. I just find the tone that works, and then I'm done. You know, you don't have to overanalyze every single part of it yeah that's that's the type of humility
0: only a bass player can can have a guitar player (laughs) would never ever say a guitar (laughs) player mixing a song would never say that they're not they're not pouring over the details I like that um and you're absolutely right in some in some cases it's just not as critical of a feature and and that can be said about any instrument depending on the genre you're playing in and and so kind of about another, um, as I was talking about the focal point, as you bring in each of those other elements, whether it's you know, let's say the vocal is your main is your focal point, which oftentimes it is. When you bring in the snare, that's a critical part because they're the snare and the vocals kind of share a lot of the same frequency band. So you got to make sure that those two elements fit together. And I was I was actually, I think it was Matthew Weiss who does a lot of mix tutorials. He was talking about in hip hop, he had some good examples of like picturing visually where either the snare was above the vocal or below the vocal in the frequency spectrum. And that was like, oh you know, a, a, both a mix decision and a production decision because you have to choose that snare sound based on, you know, the timbre of the vocalist and uh, and
1: how you want the, the mix to sound. Now, what was he, I'm really curious about this was he focusing on the body of the snare? Because in a snare drum, I normally think of the body around 200 hertz, which also would be the body of the bass area of a vocal. And there's also the snap on a snare, which is also up in the high register where a lot of the air comes from in a vocal. So what was he focusing on mainly, or is it the overlap of both? You know, I... I can't remember exactly because it was a couple of years ago I
0: read the article, but I do remember that I think the examples he was using were using, um, you know, it was like like 909 or 808 snares or something like that. or it was, oh, okay. Um, you know, it was it was an electronic snare sound that he was in his examples. We had like a Tribe Called Quest as an example and some other ones where, you know, like Q-Tip, if you're a hip-hop fan, it's got like a really nasally voice. It's got a lot of probably like one, one kilohertz. So I think... I don't remember now, but anyway, it was. I thought that was interesting because that is something we fight in a lot of
1: genres: is that balance between the snare and the and the main vocal. That's so interesting, and I love that. That's uh, that's a concept anybody can learn because it's not about learning how. It's not necessarily about learning how. I can pick the best snare to go with each vocal. It's really about. Just learning to listen and make sure each instrument plays well with the other, v- vocals right. included. Because if you can get that down, you can apply that to anything when you're recording. You don't Absolutely. have to specifically just learn about each individual thing.
0: And a, a nice way to do this, even when you're testing your your production, is like when you're playing it back, you can, let's say, mute the snare. Bring it in and out, and see if the vocal clears up. And that can be, if the vocal clears up when you mute the snare, if it, you know, if you can understand the words better, uh, that could be an indication that you kind of have some something stepping on each other a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, so we have the focal point. We said we bring stuff in and make sure that it doesn't interfere. Um, what else, Ben? What's next on your list?
1: When you go into a recording environment, and this is this is applicable whether you're recording yourself or not, it's important to buffer in time to pick tones. And even if you're rushed for time, it's worth it to spend time in the beginning just playing around with tones (sighs) for two reasons. One, it's part of the fun of being in the studio and the experience. And you Mm -hmm. learn so much through that. Uh, Even though maybe the... uh, the bread and butter of it is the recording part. I mean, it's called recording. Um, but so much of the recording happens even before you hit you know, the red button and actually <laughs> start recording. So this is whether you have guitar pedals, effects, different cabs to mess with, uh, or you're plugging straight into your interface when you're recording guitar or bass, because I've done both. But just taking time to really hone in on what you like and, and what is working is so worth the time to do.
0: Yeah, and even even if, um, I guess, what an analogy you can think of is like woodworking, right? Like only a small part of woodworking is the actual blade spinning and you cutting wood. Like you have to do a lot of measuring <laughs> and preparation. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of, that's one way to look at it. But also, even if you're recording through a DI, which you know you and I are both big proponents of, I still think, and I think you'd agree, is that it's important to monitor through at least close to the final tone that you're going for. Like, it's totally yeah. okay to play with those tones after, but again, I think having that tone is an important part of of the performance, and it just change, changes your pick attack, it changes the way you approach the instrument.
1: Yeah, okay, so I guess what I wanted to transfer um, transition into now is why I kind of came to this realization and why I feel like it's so important. It's to get things recorded as quality as possible and not just rely on, well, the mix will clean it up. We can fix that in the mix. (laughs) You know, the the famous old, like, we'll fix it later. We'll edit it. We'll, We'll do whatever. Really where this started making a lot more sense to me is when I first started to do mixing type of stuff. And I just thought, like I mentioned in the beginning, that mixing was all about... You know, you record your parts and then you just carve out the frequencies literally to make room for other instruments. And the more that I've done mixing, the more I've found myself doing less of that and more focusing on picking tones or once I have the tones that I like, Figuring out how to enhance each of those tones in the context of everything else that's happening. And that might seem like a little subtle uh, delineation, but it's made my mixes so much better. And I think part of the realization is that pretty much every instrument takes up a much larger frequency spectrum than, uh, than is even audible in the mix. So I would say a lot of times, bass guitar, you can hear it and you can feel it thumping anywhere from 40 hertz up to maybe 200 at the highest or 160. But really, if you sold that bass, it's taking up the whole frequency spectrum from 40 up to maybe 2K. That's where the guitars live as well. Even higher than that. I mean, the the experiment you can do is just like
0: throw an EQ or a filter on your main bus, and I guarantee no matter which kind of band you solo, you'll hear at least some of every instrument, pretty
1: much. Yeah, that's true. And so just based on the tone you pick alone, it enhances that instrument in the context of everything else. Uh, And a lot of times it's important to have that kind of an ear whenever you're picking the tones to record with because. I'll say you know it. You'll know it through experience, but you know when you picked a wrong turn, ter- uh, a wrong tone. When and I'll use bass as an example. Let's say you have a song with drums, guitar, and vocals. You- you'll know you picked the wrong bass tone if, no matter how loud you have it, uh, you can't hear it in the mix, or or it just sounds like you can't quite uh, get something that's equally articulated or quiet enough like you turn it up to a certain level to be able to hear it and then it just sounds like it's completely crushing everything else it's muddy yeah the
0: low one gets muddy maybe the kick drum stops coming through the guitars get a little bit obstructed yeah
1: any thoughts about that
0: no that that's good stuff i mean i think you're absolutely right so i i think that is a mistake that a lot of people who are just starting out mixing make the first mistake is they don't use any filtering and everything is just a muddy mess. And then when they figure that out, they start cutting away too much and you end up with these kind of empty or sterile sounding mixes. And, you know, the right answer is somewhere in between. I'll say a couple of things there, though. You know, so for one thing, yes, every instrument has, takes up a large portion of the frequency spectrum, but they still have kind of the important bands that they play. Like, You know, I would rather have the bass doing work at 100 hertz than having the guitar doing work at 100 hertz because the bass just sounds better at that frequency. So there are certain optimal ranges for certain instruments, and one thing to avoid is picking tones that step on those frequencies or boosting those frequencies during the recording Hmm. or mixing process. So for example, if I know I'm going to have a big bass line, I don't want to turn the bass up all the way on my guitar amp and have a really good chug sound. That may sound great in isolation, but in the context of the bass, you're probably going to get a muddy mess in the beginning. I would rather have the bass kind of do the heavy lifting at that, um, at that, at that frequency range, but like you said, I don't want to also just cut everything below 200 hertz out of the guitar because that's going to make the guitar sound really thin. So there's a bit of a True. balancing act you have to use there. A couple of rules of thumb would be I mean, we talk a lot about if you if you're into mixing, you hear a lot about subtractive EQ, which is the concept of you know reducing frequencies using equalizers, but being kind of thinking twice before boosting, because again, when you boost a lot of frequencies, your mix ends up kind of sounding smaller in a sense, and mm-hmm. that goes along with that same concept. Is I'd rather I'd rather cut a little bit out of the low end of the guitar to make the bass cut through, rather than turning up the bass and then you know, obstructing something else, and then having to turn something else up. So you'll have a clear mix, and you'll probably run into less uh,
1: headroom issues that way. You got any thoughts on that? I love your first example of um, not wanting to overchug your guitars because it does <laughs> yeah. sound it does sound awesome in isolation when you crank up the bass on a Marshall. You know, half like a half rack uh, or. Is that what it's called? Half-stack. Half-stack. Yeah, Yeah. not half-rack. Half-stack. Like pancakes. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It sounds awesome when you crank up that bass, but like you said, it kind of gets in the room. And I think what people don't realize is that uh, in a lot of songs, the bass and the guitar are so interplaying together that if you would mute the bass, you would be like, where did the guitar low end go? And it's actually the bass that's... It's almost like they are two instruments in one. The bass and the guitar are one guitar instrument working together.
0: That's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, in so many songs. So you don't have to rely on the guitar to do so much of the heavy lifting at the bottom. You just bring in the bass to a point where it's adding to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, actually, I was talking to an
0: engineer, a good friend of mine, who, who went to school for audio engineering, which neither of us did. Uh, but he was telling me about um, a professor that he had who was like a pretty well-renowned producer yelling at the students for like soloing stuff in the mix. And Interesting. his whole thing was like, don't solo it. It doesn't matter what it sounds like in solo. Now, of course, in principle, we do solo stuff because it's a useful way of finding problems. But his point is, all, is, is very valid. It's saying like, don't think so much about how it sounds on its own. That would be like you in your bedroom with a guitar amplifier turning the bass all the way up. Think about it in the context of the other instruments. So I thought that was uh, really interesting. I guess they would get kind of the old ruler ruler slap on the knuckles for that.
1: The danger that you run into when you solo stuff is that you're going to overcompensate so much. Mm. And But if you're listening to things in the context of everything, that, that's the way that your song is meant to be consumed, I guess, or, or meant to be heard, is... In a loud, so I imagine if you're a singer songwriter and you have aspirations to be a rock star, you want your song to be heard in an arena. Like it's super loud. There's a lot of people there just, you know, living in that limelight. And in that context, like probably most people can't tell apart like, oh, this frequency is attributed to this instrument or, or this or not. They just hear the song for what it is. And so I think when you work in that way and you record in that way, it makes a lot more sense for the end product.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you could listen to I, the the episode I did on um, the little bonus episode on on pop vocals. You can kind of hear there where like the main vocal is is very full sounding. It's coming down the middle. That's the focal point of that whole mess of vocal harmonies. The vocals that are coming from the side, if you listen to them by themselves, which I I played in that episode, they sound very anemic and very kind of scooped. Hmm. And you're almost like they don't sound good in solo. But when they're played together with the rest of the vocal tracks, they sound good. And that's a conscious decision to kind of scoop out some of the really important frequencies in those background vocals to make that main vocal really pop out. And those background vocals aren't as important; they're just there as a supporting role. Uh, so that's that's kind of you know that same concept applies to the rest of the mix as well. Another big thing here, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is is the use of high pass and low pass filters during recording. So what we mean by that is, I think we explained a little bit last episode. A high pass filter allows it allows the high frequencies to pass. So it cuts out low frequencies. Low pass filter is the opposite. It allows low frequencies to pass and cuts out high frequencies. So an example of where you would use something like this is for, well, like for example, we're recording this podcast. You know, the human voice doesn't have a lot of useful information below, let's say, 80 hertz or so. So we could just cut out everything or have a kind of a a rapid decline, everything below 80 hertz, and that's going to maybe clean up some low-end rumble, from hitting the mic stand or something like that. What's your philosophy on using filters during tracking?
1: Uh, if I can get away with it, I never use filters during tracking. Okay. And my reasoning is I'm either going to position the mics or EQ the head itself. Like sometimes I'll ask the guitar players that I'm recording, uh, can I play with the EQ settings on your head? Really? Because, it, yeah, in so- only sometimes if I feel like they're not as particular about their tone or if they're open to it. Like uh my brother-in-law's band who I record every now and again, like he he just trusts me. He's like, I'm just a guitar player. You can you can adjust my tone as you think it needs to be adjusted. And he he gives me examples of what he's going for and he's pretty close. But for example, things that I'll do is and this isn't necessarily talking about high pass filtering, but sometimes what he might hear in a song and is going for is, oh, I want a lot of like bitey top end. And he'll just have his presence knob cranked a little bit too much. And so Mm. it gets gets to the point of, oh, that's a little bit too spiky. So let me back off. Let me turn up the treble and turn down the presence because maybe you have a better idea since you're actually a guitar player and I'm not. But uh, I start with bass mid and treble to get the overall tone. And then if I feel like, well, the high end could be more sparkly then i'll add presence and what i mean by sparkly is i believe what presence is doing is it's adding more high harmonics is what it feels like to me maybe it might
0: vary on amps i know on some amps it's basically just another eq band so like presence would be in in between the mid and the treble interesting but to your point i think the best way to treat it is just as another eq band and you know, turn it up to 10, see what it does. Turn it down to zero, see what it does. Yeah. And <laughs> adjust adjust the taste. But what you're saying is you will actually adjust the treble first and the presence, it sounds like is kind
1: of the last thing you're dialing in. Yeah. I think that makes sense. If I'm micing up the cab, I'll position the microphone in a way that it's getting the best tone from the guitar cab. It's not too boomy, it might sound cool if it's picking up more sub, but it might be too much. So I'm trying to find that that nice balance of, okay, the microphone's picking up a lot of presence and also the body of the guitar. And uh, so with that being said, a lot of times what I'll do is, after I track it, then I'll go in maybe with a high-pass filter and cut off the low rumble that doesn't sound like tone. It's just low rumbling noise. But I try to... That's only after I've already recorded. Yeah,
0: I, I actually agree with you. I tend to not high-pass, low-pass filter very much during recording because of the same reason. I, you know, I know we say we try to get as close to a final tone as we can. That's definitely true. I'd still rather err on the side of having more frequency information than less to a certain degree. It's sort of like over-compressing, if you've over-compressed going in, you can't undo that. Hmm. If you if you took out too much low-end out of your guitar, you, you really can't undo that. So I would rather make that decision in the mix. Now, there would be some exceptions there. Like, for example, if I'm using compression going in um, and I don't want low frequencies to trigger the compressor for some yeah. reason on a source... I may high pass filter there. Also, I know on recording drums, which I don't do a ton of, but I do get into it occasionally, um, like um, low pass. No, sorry, high pass filtering the overheads um, to you know to minimize some uh, bleed from like floor
1: toms and or whatever else you may not want that's close mic'd. I was recording a band that the uh they were using a PV guitar amp and it sounded freaking awesome but the one problem with it was that it didn't have enough low end so what i actually did was i combined uh the di signal with the microphone mm-hmm. cuz the mic the mic was capturing the mid and high of the guitar really nicely but i picked a jcm 800 emulation to run the DI through that had a lot of low end that was awesome. But I felt like that tone, because it was too aggressive, it was like a high gain JCM 800 emulation. It was too metally to go with the 80s PV tone. So I rolled off with a low pass filter, I rolled off that high end, and then it married together a lot better. Because mm. otherwise, the DI tone would have been way too aggressive. And it would have sounded like... Uh, a guitar player from 2020 playing with a guitar player from the 1980s,
0: like Back to the Future. That's great. it
1: was it was crazy, <laughs> but just like a simple low pass filter made the guitars fit together so well. The last note that I have
0: on here is you know how I love you know how much I love visual analogies to things. Yes, even though, even though audio is is audio, but a visual analogy that I find very useful for planning songs and also if you're if you're doing your own mixing is to think of your mix as a box. So if you picture a cube, and you're standing in front of the cube, you have to fit all of your elements into this cube. And the way to think about the cube is obviously you have left to right, that's just your panning, that's your stereo field. Let's think about top to bottom of the cube as the frequency spectrum. So at the bottom, very bottom, you got your 20 hertz, that's your really subby stuff that you can barely hear, and then you know everything up to the kick drum and so on. And then the very top is the 20 kilohertz, you know, the very top of what you can hear. And then front to back is kind of like a spatial illusion that we get in a mix where stuff sounds far away or stuff sounds close. And every element should kind of have its own spot in the box, right? So like vocals maybe will be right up front and in the middle. And it's kind of a helpful way to picture where you're putting things in the box that can tell you a little bit about where what you want to do frequency-wise, panning-wise, and then, like reverb effect-wise, or this, you know, spatial effect-wise, you ever, you ever visualize things like that, Ben?
1: I I agree with this so much, um, because it applies to it really applies to any genre of music too. Mm-hmm. So let's imagine your analogy again. The box is the full sp- frequency spectrum, and the the width is the panning. I feel like a really good song is getting hit with a box that is equally. Uh, the weight's equally distributed from top to bottom, left to right. It fills up everything. And front to back, yeah. And front to back, yeah.
0: Yeah, because you hear mixes that are a lot of times, you know, you could think of they feel very flat. Everything feels it's like on a single plane. That mm-hmm. could be like, well, you put everything right in the front of the box or everything right in the back of the box, and that's not going to sound great either. So I agree with you. It really transcends genres on this concept of the box Filling the box is important in just about any genre you can think of.
1: Yeah. One, maybe one last example, uh, to show you that it does fit every genre is, uh, think about maybe, uh, for the hard, hard rock fans out there, like pretty much every hard rock band, maybe not every, but every hard rock band, they have like a ballad. And so every song is just screaming electric guitars, and then the ballad song comes along where they're, Happens to be an acoustic in there somewhere, probably in the bridge, and this acoustic sounds like it was recorded with a piece of paper or something. You, you know what I mean? It's just very flat. There's not too much to it. It's just enough to let you know, as a listener, that this is an acoustic guitar, but it doesn't sound—it <laughs> doesn't sound quality at all. It's just there to give a vibe. Uh, contrast that with like a singer-songwriter that's very sultry and maybe it's only a vocal and an acoustic that acoustic guitar is going to take up the whole sp- frequency the spectrum whole
0: thing. absolutely
1: down the whole way from the bass up into above the vocal probably yep and it could be the exact same acoustic guitar that they recorded but the applications are very different because of what you have playing with each other but there's still the goal of the, st- the song is still to fill up that mix
0: yeah absolutely it's a great example
1: Cool. You got anything else on here? Maybe the last thing I want to leave people with in talking about all of this is not to get... We just talked about a lot of nitpicky things as far as picking tones and being willing to spend the time instead of just playing the parts and recording them, picking the tones that are going to be recorded as well. But I also wanted to throw out there that we want to be we want to spend quality time, but we don't want to be nitpicky whenever we're doing stuff like this, because that's equally uh there's an equal chance of falling falling into that trap as there is uh, not spending enough time
0: yeah i, I there's a, there's a a psychological experiment that I can never remember who did it or when or why, but it's really interesting. The goal of the experiment was to see how much jam they could sell at this thing. You know this is what I'm talking about? I don't know. It's like a it's a classic case of paralysis by analysis, right? So, in one setup, they had a a stand set up on a street or something selling jams, and they were giving people samples of each jam. And they had 3 types of jams. And they found that, you know, they sold some number or whatever. People would taste it and they would decide, "Oh, I like jam number 1 best," and they would buy some jam. The second stand set up somewhere else had 15 different jams. Huh. Same thing. They they were giving out samples, like how many jams can we sell? And they sold way less because huh. people couldn't decide. There's like, there's too many choices. And this is a lot of times I think the problem we run into with having so many options at our fingertips with like, I have a box right next to me right now that has 20 different preamp simulations and 30 different cabinets, and I can mix and match those any way I want. And that's a lot of choices. And so sometimes there's something to be said for like, no, no, no. I have this one amp and this is my tone. I'm going to get my tone out of this amp. Now you have to like that amp, but it's going to make your decision process a little bit easier. I'm so excited actually to do our guitar tone episode soon yes, because me I too. have so much more to say on this. But um, yeah, just something to keep in mind. Sometimes having all those options, not always a great idea. So committing, making a decision and committing might
1: be uh, something to consider. Uh, music comes back to being a feeling at the end of the day, and so, if I'm looking for, it doesn't matter, vocal, guitar, bass, drums, anything else, I know I pick the right tone whenever I get that feeling in my chest of like, oh, that is really cool, or I'm tapping my foot to it and I'm really digging it, then I stop looking. As soon as I find that, because the temptation is, the temptation (laughs) is always to say- Keep tweaking. Well, I can make that a little bit better. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you're so right. And the more
0: you think about it, eventually you'll start thinking it's maybe it's not that good. So you're, I, right. I totally
1: agree with you. That first impression, that first time you're like, ooh, that's that's it, go with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. This is a fun episode. And as always,
0: this is the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself
1: before you wreck yourself. All right. Have a good one, guys.
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com, get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording, or shoot me an email, vk. At calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.